welcome to another edition of our Chefs and Guests podcast series over on Spoon Mob and the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Taylor Ponty, who, if you're not familiar with Taylor, he's actually a chef out in Maui, in Hawaii. I mean, he's left Maui, you know, visited other places, but he's always cooked in Hawaii. He cooked in Honolulu for a little while, too, but mainly on Maui. I first learned about him when we went, it was a couple years ago, I think, 2018, it was when we were getting married. I don't remember if it was before or after. I think it was the night after. We went to a chef's table dinner. So it was at this place called the Maui Tropical Plantation, which is no longer open. It's closed. Part of it's being redeveloped into like a school and like apartment complex and stuff like that. It was this big kind of swath of acreage and they had a pineapple farm on there and there was a nice like little pond area with like a water wheel and they had a coffee house and a restaurant there was some zip lining. There was a whole bunch of different stuff that you could do there. One of the things that they had was a chef's table experience It was a, that they would do on Saturdays. And it was a little bit different because, and we get into it on the podcast here, it was a little different in that it was a more interactive chef's table experience. So it wasn't like you were at a table. They still came and, and served you the food and everything like that and explained the dishes, explained the courses. You could get up and walk around in between dishes when they were prepping. So they had a big, long counter in the back, and that was kind of the, the divide from the dining room and the kitchen. It was all in one kind of open, almost like a kind of barn situation, but you know, parts of it were open, just had open breezeways and stuff. And you could go and take pictures and watch them create the dishes and different ingredients as they were plating and stuff like that and, and talk to, you know, different cooks and chefs and everything. So it was really cool. And it's the only experience like that that I've had so far. I haven't really come across anything else that's been that interactive. That was kind of my first experience. You can go to our Instagram. It's probably from around May. I posted a bunch of pictures because we were going back to Hawaii. So just kind of fit with a theme of what I was just like, what should I post? And I'll post this stuff because it's cool. So I reached out to Taylor and he was more than happy to come on the podcast. And he's currently doing a kind of like a private dining, private catering thing, can do events and stuff like that. They've been doing weddings, but it's called Kamadu, which not to be confused with the grill, which is Kind of, it looks like a big green egg, except it's red. It's kind of that. That's the branding for that. Not to be confused with that. He goes in the name and everything like that, too. And he's worked at a bunch of different places around Honolulu and Hawaii. You know, worked at an Alan Wong's restaurant. We get into kind of his career and how he got started and eventually you know, how he made his way over to the chef's table experience and getting laid off because of COVID and, and winning a prestigious award in Hawaii, Best Chef Hawaii and everything. So uh, we kind of touch in all that and what he's doing now and kind of future plans too. So it's a really cool episode. Uh, if you ever have the chance to get out to Maui, reach out to him. You know, they can do stuff, you know, even if you're just visiting, they can do stuff, uh, you know, if you have like an Airbnb, uh, they can do stuff in probably hotel rooms too as well. So uh, definitely reach out, hit him up if he's still doing the the catering stuff because, you know, future plans eventually wants to get back into to kind of a brick and mortar space and everything. And that's kind of the, the long-term goal, which we touch on towards the end. But you don't have to be on Maui either. He, he does do the other islands too as well, which is really cool. He'll travel inner island and they'll prep and, and do stuff too. So if you have a wedding or anything like that, think about getting married out in Hawaii, definitely hit them up if it's a smaller wedding. But without further delay, this is my interview and conversation with Chef Taylor Ponty of Kamadu over in Maui, Hawaii. Cool. Well, thanks again for doing this. Really appreciate it. I know we have a, a giant time differential, I think about six hours since you're over in Maui there. First got to experience your cuisine when you were at the Maui's Chef's Table, which we did when we were out there before. I don't remember if it was before we had our wedding or if it was after. I can't remember the course of events. Had a great time there. You know, a few people from the wedding came with us too as well. So that was cool. And the interactive component. And that's obviously has since closed because of 
the pandemic and part of it's being redeveloped into like a housing complex and stuff like that. And you're doing something else and we're going to get there too. Wanted to just kind of start like I do with pretty much everybody, kind of the format, you know, starting all the way back at the beginning. How did you first get into cooking? Well, so, you know, I grew up with my three brothers and my dad. So there wasn't a lot of cooking culture. My dad had us late in life. So there wasn't grandparents around. I don't have like a lot of food memories or anything like the average chef story. But in Hawaii, the food culture is really big and, you know, people are very welcoming and you can come into their home and every weekend someone's having a barbecue. So I always got to try a large amount of people's culture based off of, you know, large sporting events that we have here. You know, MMA is really big. You go to someone's garage party. You know, I I ended up moving in with another family to kind of help me finish high school and whatnot. They had a lot of food cooking traditions and a lot of, you know, food rituals and things that they did. They'd make dumplings and a lot of different foods for New Year's and Christmas was a big roast. And, you know, so suddenly I was immersed in a larger food culture than I was used to. Before, right before I graduated high school, I ended up working as a dishwasher for a restaurant. And um, I really had no idea what I was going to do post high school. I had zero plan. Um, I didn't really go to school very much. I was really into skateboarding. And I thought that for whatever reason, that was going to take off. So I was living in some fantasy world. And, uh, you know, so I just did dishes and uh, ended up going back to school at University of Maui College to actually root in some English and mathematics and kind of just get all my liberals done. And while I was doing that, I I got some kind of bug bite to want to go into the paramedic program and become EMT. After that, I, you know, I kept working in restaurants to pay for my schooling and I didn't have a huge financial support at the time. And so I kind of just kept going and figuring things out as long as I went. And the kitchen was kind of like the backbone to pay my rent, pay my gas bill, um, all that. And while I was going to school, I just realized that I really didn't like the EMT or the medical program very much. And I would go home late and watch YouTube videos about cooking and read cookbooks And at the time I was working at a fine dining restaurant and it was like someone turned a light switch on and I was like, I wish I could just do something that made me feel as good as I do when I'm cooking. And so I dropped out of school the next day and signed up for culinary school the next semester. Between that time, it had been about five, six years of cooking before I went to culinary school. So I had some experience and I just kind of kept going and ended up working for a bunch of great chefs. And here I am today. When you're growing up in Maui, what's the produce situation like several years ago? So the restaurant scene compared to what it is today on Maui isn't the same. So was it a lot of people just kind of like local mom and pop restaurants and then also everybody just kind of cooking at home too as well and just family recipes and stuff like that? We have, you know, we have an interesting, uh, interesting history with restaurants in Hawaii. We, with any country, you know, or any kind of area, you always, you know, Pearl Harbor really pushed back the the production of food and whatnot. And everything was kind of working towards World War II and Pearl Harbor happened. And, you know, so there wasn't a lot of like massive gains for restaurants in Hawaii at the time. Everything was focused on, you know, a lot of people were going away to do that thing and whatnot. What you saw is a lot of um, to-go restaurants and noodle bars and pastries and things that are really, really popular, like the Spamusabi, the Manapua, it's all grab and go food. And then those eventually kind of turns into Simon stands, which is like a noodle um, broth soup and, you know, quick and easy plate lunch bites and things like that. Everything that people can just kind of grab and go. And that's not to say that we haven't had restaurants do really, really well, but I grew up in the generation where a lot of the mom and pop restaurants were were shutting down. We had a great place in Makwal that everybody went to in my hometown. It was called Kitadas. And it was a local restaurant. You know, they had a really, really cool cheeseburger. 
the ideal mom and pop. It's one of those restaurants when you go to pay at the cash register, they had candy there, like a gas station, you know, and the, the auntie working the register would give you a, a roll of Starburst because she, you know, she was really nice to you. And so, you know, I grew up in that area and then we approached like the evolution of um, Roy Yamaguchi, Alan Wong, Bev Gannon, Peter Marion, this, this large um, Hawaii regional cuisine push. And, you know, you could really see that that gap was filled and people were wanting to eat more local produce and they were pushed on a different level because we live in an area where so much stuff is shifted, you know, for a plantation history rich area. We started growing food and 10, 12 years later now, I believe we have some of the best produce in the world because of all the different microclimates we have. And it's just, we have so many different restaurants that want to start using local produce and are currently, and it's beautiful. And growing up in the ranch area in Hawaii, I always had a love for working on farms and eating food that just, you know, was there. I grew up, one of my first jobs, unofficial jobs was digging fence posts for my neighbor's cattle ranch. And uh, it was hard work and it made your back strong, but you know, you also got produce and they paid you in beef majority of it. And you know, it's just a different upbringing that we have with food and, you know, the day in, day out life of an area that's based off of farming. I think a lot of people, when they think Hawaii, especially from the mainland, it's they think beaches and blue waters and, and that's all there. But there is another side to Hawaii where it is the ranches and the farms and stuff like that that people grow up on. You mentioned, too, as well, one of the chefs, one of the more famous ones from Hawaii, Alan Wong, which you worked at one of his restaurants coming up, too. Was that during high school you were working there? Yeah, Amnesia's. It's actually Amnesia. We throw an S on everything in Hawaii for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, it was Amnesia. That was my first, like, getting my feet wet, um, fine dining restaurant. He really, like, focused, you know, his chefs. He was the executive, or he was the, the large chef, the entire chef owner, restaurant operator, restaurateur. And our head chef and our sous chef were, you know, they drilled it into us daily, um, how important supporting local produce was and, like, would show us how much better it was than stuff being brought in because... We're at a hotel and they're just bringing in whatever they can to support the masses. But we were a restaurant privately in a hotel. So we had a completely different amount of, you know, we didn't have any overripe melons that we were cutting. We had like perfectly ripe tomatoes that weren't covered in wax shipped in from different areas. And they drilled it into us. And and uh, it really stuck for me. You know, um, when I started there, I was, uh, you know, a, a prep cook and I moved up the line a lot. And, uh, you know, we had to individually roll the herbs and put them in. And so we, we took a lot of time and effort to really pay respect to these products and not just receiving them and, and respectfully ordering them, but packaging them and make sure we weren't wasting them and making sure that we weren't doing too many weird things to it so that the customer couldn't eat it in its natural beauty. And that's something that till this day has been like embodied in my culinary vision. How did you wind up there? Like, did you just go and apply? I mean, Alan Wong is, I think, one of three chefs from Hawaii that have won a James Beard Award. How did you get there? Like, one day I'm going to write a book or, like, make, like, a, a Vine about or a TikTok or something about this. Like, this is, like, the worst, like, chef story, but funniest thing that's probably ever happened to me. So I, I was in school. My best friend and I, you know, we never ended up doing it, but we were always, like, we're going to be roommates and all this kind of stuff. The only real job experience we had was we had worked in this diner together. We were like, we should go move into Kihei. That's where all the young people are. And there's beaches and, you know, there's bars and, you know, we can have like a nightlife because we grew up in the countryside. So there's just nothing going on. So, you know, we, we were applying for jobs out there and I was in the ENT program and uh, this new restaurant was opening up. It was like the talk of the town in Wailea. Man, I was like, I'm just going to apply and see what happens. And so I literally walked into this interview and like, Crocs, 
a pair of corduroy pants that my brother probably wore to like graduation and this like stupid like aloha shirt like i just you know this is like the nicest stuff i had you know i'm like fresh out of high school i have no money i did an interview there interview with the sous chef and you know she asked me all these things Alan Wong has a very unique way of interviewing people. And he asks you a lot of philosophical, you know, is this cup half filled, half empty kind of stuff, you know, out of everything, what is most important passion, drive, skills, you know, talent. And, you know, so the interview process is really long. And uh, so I was interviewing with this sous chef. Her name was uh, Chef Mia. And, uh, you know, she was terrifying. She was just like the ideal, like, like textbook chef, just you could tell she knew what she was doing. And, you know, as a young person approaching their 20s, you don't have the, the confidence that you do when you're growing up and, you know, you feel confident in yourself. And so she was interviewing me and she's asking me all these questions. And she goes, oh, so um, you've been to school, I hear. And I said, yeah, yes, chef, I'm in school right now. And she was like, that's really good. I hear they have a great program. But she never asked me if I was in culinary school. She just went to school. So I just said, yeah, you know, and I really wanted the job. So I, I just, yeah, it wasn't a lie. I didn't mean to lie, you know. And uh, so we went through that. And she was like, I'm so happy to see that someone from the school is finally applying here. We have a few students. And you know that Alan Wong has a program where he pays um, for some of the kids schooling to go to the school. And I was like, oh, that's really, really great. So, you know, this this went on. And then finally she said, well, let me go grab the, the head chef. He, you know, he'll want to interview you. And he came over and he said, uh, Oh, so I heard you had a really, really good interview with Chef Mia. And I said, well, you know, I hope so. You know, I'd really like the job here. And so I sat with him for about an hour. We talked story. And again, he never said culinary school. And uh, he said, how do you like school? And I said, I love school. You know, I'm I'm someone that loves to learn and try new things. And, you know, I'm not afraid for a new challenge. And I, I just go for it. You know, I got the job and probably first five minutes of work, they realized that probably wasn't in culinary school. <laughs> Day one, they had me, you know, butchering fish and doing all this stuff. My only thing that gave me survival was I used the phrase, this is my first fine dining restaurant. So show me exactly how you guys do it here so that I can respectfully do it the way that you guys want me to do it. And then I just picked up as I went along, you know, I probably just looked really, really green, but um, I mean, I was very, very focused and you know, I, I spent a lot of time in there. I'd come in early, leave late, um, cover shifts, you know, I'd try and finish my prep. And, you know, I was terrible. When I first started, I was terrible. I thought I was going to get fired every single day. Like, you know, she'd come back with all the knife cuts and just dump them. And we had this speed rack for family meal and all the mistakes would go on it. And I mean, at one point I had my own shelf of thing. Everything was like soup. It was like messed up carrots. This is soup. Messed up onions. This is soup. You know, like, some of the chefs working there were like, man, we were so happy when you finally got knife skills because we were so sick of eating soup every day. And like, I, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I, you know, I, I credit that to a lot of the success I have is I, I tell the new guys who started, you know, I made all the mistakes in this restaurant. So, you know, if you want to follow my, my way that I've done, then it'd be a lot easier and a lot less times you'll get yelled at in front of everyone. And it seemed to work pretty well for the new guys. <laughs> With the mistake rack, like what did they do with that at the end of the night? Was it like they'd call you over and be like, we're going to go through each dish is like what's wrong or was it figure it out what's wrong, why this is up here or how did that work? You know, it was definitely like the sous chef was there in the morning and the afternoon and most of dinner service. And then our chef came in later at, by pre-shift. Everyone knew that, you you know, the, the PM cooks were coming in, the PM dishwashers and they, you know, they could see the speed rack. You know, I had like my own shelf and they could see what was going wrong. But, you know, the communication was typically like Mr. Souza grew these carrots 
And, uh, you know, the reason we have to take time in cutting these and it's a waste, thankfully, you know, we can nourish the employees at Family Meal with this. But, you know, he only has a certain amount of these carrots per per batch. And, you know, we're just cooking them down and pureeing them because you can't get your knife skills right, you know. You know, I'm making not very good. We weren't getting hotel pay. You know, I wasn't making the greatest money, but I was making a living off of it. So I would go to Times Supermarket down the street and I would buy potatoes and carrots and onions. And I would just get off of work and practice at home and watch YouTube and just get it down. And I mean, to the point where like, I had that nice bump on my index finger from holding the knife and, you know, cutting wet vegetables and it, it hurt like hell. I just practice and, you know, it was the drive and like the fact that I would try and treat it like a video game every day and be like, I'm not going to screw up this up today. I'm going to try and get a perfect day done. I never had a perfect day, but I got really, really close a lot of times. And I just kept trying to do that every single day and reset and work through the family meal shift. Instead of eating family meal, I would just prep through and try and get stuff done. And eventually got to the point where we didn't need three prep cooks anymore. And they're having a hard time hiring and we were fine. And, and I became like the lead guy and they started giving me responsibilities, like checking in orders and learning learning how to order and learning different stations. And I got fast enough to where the other guys were teaching me stuff off of the line. And, you know, I learned a lot about portioning and costing and creating dishes. And it gave me a lot of opportunity to grow. Sometimes just a little white lie can get you far and inspire you to be better, you know? So you wound up actually going to Maui Culinary Academy at some point, right? Was it after that? Like, was it when they were going through the interview process? You're like, I should probably go to culinary school. (laughs) Not really. I had like, when I interviewed, I had no idea that I really enjoyed cooking because at the time I was, you know, I was transferring from working at the diner. The chefs were just a different caliber at this place. I mean, none of them worked hungover. They all were clean cut and pressed whites and, you know, really sharp knives. There's just a different, a different category of chef. I mean, these people were really good at what they did. They're very well spoken, very well educated. And it really opened my eyes to that, the way that they set up their station and broke it down and handled proteins. And they just knew things that I just didn't know. Kind of in that process, like I said, I went home one day and like the light switch turned on, but I saw the caliber of the people who had the education. I saw the people who didn't. Not to say that people who never go to culinary school can never do it. But to me personally, I saw the confidence and the professionalism they brought into the workplace. And I said, I want to be a chef like that. I want to be the chef that like when someone says like, we want consomme on the menu tomorrow, I know how to make it or I at least know what that is. And that inspired me to go to culinary school. And um, it was like worse than even coming in and interviewing, you know, like I to put in my notice of this place that I grew so much and learned so much and, and uh, it made me such a better person in general through my craft. It was like breaking up with someone when I had to put in my notice with the chef and textbook, like, you know, am I going to call him? Am I going to do it in person? Am I going to write him a, a letter? You know, all the things are going through my mind on the way to work. And uh, my stomach was just in knots. And, you know, I want to do it at the beginning of the shift, but then I, you know, I read something in a a young chef's cookbook that they talked about, that's never a good thing. So I said, at the end of my shift, I'm going to do it. Now that I've been a chef, I realized that telling a chef before dinner service on a busy night that you're leaving is not the most cool thing to do ever, you know, and he handled it very professionally. I'm pretty sure I cried. And, you know, he told me, uh, man, that's going to mess a lot of stuff up, but I'm really happy to see you do it. And, you know, I'm, I've seen you grow and I want to see you continue and I want to see you 
become a chef. And I said, you know, I have every intention of coming back. I just, I need to finish the first semester of skills and you don't really get any time to work in between that. I know the way that I am. I'm so loyal that I'd probably skip school to come into work if you really needed me. And that would be dumb if I was paying for school to do that. And so I went to culinary school after that and I ended up doing a lot of events with them and stuff. And unfortunately they shut down like four months later with no notice just things were so expensive. And I always tell a lot of the chefs that work for me, like that was like the experience that like really, really just created the foundation for me and made me want to be a better person. Maybe want to be a chef. I hated, I hated that I was getting bagged on all the time for sucking, but it, it made me want to not suck. So why did you go to Maui Culinary Academy instead of the CIA in New York or something even on the West Coast on the, on the mainland out in California or LA or something like that? Why did you decide to stay local? I had zero money, zero financial support. Like I, you know, my rent was like $1,200 and I was making, I think like 1250 plus tips at the time, you know, and I had a car and stuff like that, but bills were just insane. My uh, dad never lived anywhere but in Hawaii besides being in the military. And um, so there was never like, I think looking back now, there was never like that go out, take a chance. You can do this. There was never any of that. And my dad comes to the generation of, you know, we save our money, we don't spend money. So, you know, not having any money, I was like, I, I was terrified to travel. I was terrified to do stuff. I remember actually, when I worked down along, there was a couple CIA guys who came into stage and I talked to them. And so I had looked up the CIA and it was a pretty expensive school. And I was kind of looking up financial aid and all this kind of stuff. And the Maui Culinary Academy to do the entire program was a whopping $9,000. At the time, I had worked enough overtime and whatnot to save exactly 9000 and some change. And so that was kind of like fate to me. And I heard that they had revamped their program that year from some of the cooks that worked in Mejas and brought in a bunch of chefs that had worked at Michelin star restaurants and big restaurants. And they're very talented. And, you know, it just seemed really affordable, convenient, and easy for me. I wouldn't have to pay any out-of-state fees or excuse me, established residents. I wouldn't have to find a house with, with no one. I didn't really know anyone in the mainland at the time. You know, everyone I knew was like from Hawaii and like, it was just tough. And to me, I was kind of at this point in my life where I was like, I need to make a decision. I need to start my life. I need to start saving and doing something and investing in my future. And as a, as a young, a young guy, it definitely crossed my mind to spend $9,000 on a really cool car. I almost did it, but then I, you know, I realized that I could probably buy a cool car 20 years later, 10 years later, but it definitely crossed my mind, but I decided to go to culinary school instead. Looking back on culinary school and like all the people that work for you now or that, that you've worked with, do you think culinary school makes sense for somebody who wants to get into the profession? Or do you think like hands-on experience is more beneficial than going to culinary school? You know, I think the key word in that question is profession. And, you know, profession definitely is connected to the word professionalism. There's a lot of people who can do certain things and are good at it. And there's a lot of people who do things and are okay at it. You know, you can learn and be really, really great without going to culinary school. A lot of the chefs in the other restaurants that I work, a lot of them, you know, were insecure and would tell me things like, you don't need culinary school. Culinary school's the devil. And, you know, they have all this beef with culinary school because they never went. But all the stories that they told me, they always almost worked for a chef that went to culinary school. So it's like, yeah, I learned from this guy who wasted his money in culinary school. But if you benefited from it, 
did he waste his money? Like that guy made you help make you who you are. So you got some knowledge from him. So maybe it wasn't a waste. And if just the amount of stuff that he could communicate to you in a couple hours a day, because he was slammed was enough to get you a head chef job later down the road. And maybe you had had this experience with a couple different chefs. Maybe it was worth it. And, and I thought the same thing. And to me, I think it's worth it because there's a lot of people who are fibbers in the industry. They'll fudge it and they'll say like, this is a bechamel or this is this. And being the green person who's never got your feet wet, you'll go on your career thinking that that's what it is, but you don't. And I think having an education, just like anything else, is you can find the truths and explore them themselves. And you can throw into your repertoire what it is. Because, you know, there's, I think there's a Picasso quote, something along the lines of like, you need to know the rules good to break the rules or something like that. I forget what it is, but something like that. And that really resonated with me at the time. And so I thought I, I really would like to learn what it is that the rules are. And then one day just go off the map and break them like Jeet Kundo or something, you know, like find a formula and then realize why I can break it. Sounded really, really perfect for the Taylor Ponty mindset. Now, when you were in culinary school too, you competed in some competitions, right? Mm-hmm. What was the first competition that you competed in? So we had a lot of local ones that we did, you know, there was like fresh food challenges and we had like our own local chopped and a lot of uh, people, you know, won scholarships that way and whatnot, you know, and I won a couple scholarships and things like that from those, which is really, really helpful and cool. I saved some of that money that I'd been saving because of it. And, uh, you know, I got some great recognition and some jobs lined up and externships and things from them. But the one that really, really challenged me was the Shenderusa Tears Challenge. Everyone says that name different, but that's that's how I say it. I think I'm saying it right, but a lot of people call it the chain or the chain or, but I did that challenge and uh, I did that actually twice. I came pretty close, um, but you know, there was a lot of talented people in there and uh, it was a challenge where you wake up at like four in the morning and you don't get a recipe book. You don't get a scale. You you show up to a station, it's complete mystery basket and you have to make three courses for six people in three hours from all raw materials, whole animal. And you have no idea what you're going to get. And, you know, you know, you're going into that competition again with knots in your stomach and everyone in the waiting room is just scared and fidgeting. And, you know, they're throwing up because they're so nervous and, you know, you're watching each other and you're sharing the one chinois in this, this large kitchen and they don't have all the ingredients that you would use. You know, at the time I was like all about produce because I had worked at Alan Wong's and, you know, they had like broccolini and stuff like that. And, you know, like I thought there was going to be way crazier produce and, you know, it's limited spices and, you know, you have to wait on machines. So you're kind of like, you're just in an anxiety ball the whole time trying to get your stuff done and make it perfect. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like one of the, one of the times that I did it, I pulled sweetbreads and I didn't even know what sweetbreads were. And in Hawaii, we have sweet bread from like Molokai and Big Island. A couple of guys menus, they had like French toast sweetbreads on their menu and then they dropped off these thyroid gland, you know, alien looking things. And the guy next to me is like, oh man, I messed up. I didn't know what this was sweetbreads was. I was like, ooh, yeah, yeah, you're kind of stuck with that, man. Like I paired mine with the duck because I thought it was going to be sweet and I was going sweet and salty, but you can pair sweetbreads with the duck a little bit easier than you can a sorbet. I was like, good luck with that, <laughs> you know? So it, it, it was tough, you know, they used ingredients that maybe you hadn't seen. And it's just like that in any challenges. You just have to go in there with confidence and know your Kung Fu and have faith in it. And hopefully you just do what you do well. Just fight your best fight. Would you go on any of the culinary competitions now? You know, the top chefs or the chops or whatever? 
Absolutely. You know, like it, it really, it really depends. Um, you know, I'm not really big into the quirky ones, you know, um, I know a lot of chefs do it for publicity and stuff like that, but this is like my craft and whatnot. And I would be pretty bummed if I went on like a spoofy show and like something bad happened, you know, like I would want to, I would do a show that shows respect to the craft and what we do and is surrounded by the fact that you're there to make great food and execute great food. And that's usually what I say, you know, I've gotten offers for, for shows and things like that. That's usually like the parameters in which I choose to sign on to something is, does it properly showcase the food in Hawaii? Does it properly showcase myself? You know, is this the best part point in time for me to do it? Because, you know, I'm all about taking risks and going for it. Um, having stayed on Maui and whatnot, it really opened my eyes. And that's why I did, you know, travel and do stages and and uh, enter these competitions and challenge myself is because prior to that, I had just done what was comfortable because I saw what being poor was like. And I was afraid to take any kind of financial leap because I'd seen what to me felt like poverty. And, and, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back. After culinary school, was that vintage cave? Was that next? When I was in culinary school, I, you know, I started working part-time and I was working as a teacher's aide and I worked a couple of line cook shifts at a bunch of small restaurants and things like that. And uh, every weekend there was, you know, um, I got to work with Mark Sakai when he came into town. Um, Chef Sheldon Simeon had just uh, come back from Top Chef. So, I, you know, I tried to go to every single food and wine event and prep. And, you know, I was going to a Pulehu Grill in Lahaina and trying to just go there because I knew they made fresh pasta and just work at any restaurant I could. And I made a lot of connections. And uh, I kind of got the reputation at the culinary school with the instructors that I wasn't afraid to say no. And I was open to doing tasks. and. I ended up going to a uh, food function and we worked with Emeril Lagasse and uh, that was pretty cool. And a bunch of other big name chefs came down from Manhattan. I ended up getting picked up by a catering and private chef guy and I finished culinary school doing that. And then um, what had happened was we had opened up a sh- the chef's table concept and uh, we did a chef's table for a couple of people who were looking to open a restaurant and we opened the mill house. And so I was the sous chef there. And then... Uh, I got really burnt out and I took a break for a year and then I came back as the chef de cuisine. And then uh, less than a year later, um, I moved up to taking over the entire kitchen as the executive chef. But in that time that I was um, working as a sous chef at uh, the mill house, I ended up flying over and working with Jonathan Mizukami because I was just finishing culinary school right when we started the mill house. You know, they had an externship there and uh, this flyer had been sitting on the, uh, bulletin board in the hallway for like weeks untouched and the problem was that at the top of it it said french laundry alumni of 17 years jonathan mizukami opens the vintage cave and it had all these pictures of these beautiful plates and it was really really intimidating but i always i you know i at the time and still to this day i just my favorite one of my favorite chefs is thomas keller you know one of my biggest regrets was never going up there and actually working with him and and uh, so I was like, man, this is pretty damn close. Like the food looks really, really great. And the article was amazing. And uh, I was just about to fill it out. And one of the chefs like quite literally like grabbed me by my coat, and pulled me in his office. And he was like, fill out this form, you're going. And I was like, I was just about to sign up, I swear. <laughs> and uh, he was like, you're the only one here who's going to do it. And so I went and uh, it it changed, you know, my, my brother was living in Honolulu. So that made it very easy for housing. And there was a great bus system to, uh, Ala Moana, um, shopping center, which it was below Shirakia's. It's really, it's a beautiful restaurant. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous, beautiful artwork. The kitchen's immaculate. I had to ride the elevator down there 
just terrified. You know, all the, all the doubts are trying to get in your head while you're going down there. And are your sharp, are your knives sharp enough? You know, do you have the tools? You, you gotta be fast. Knife skills gotta be on point. You know, I just told myself, I took a deep breath and I just told myself like anything that these guys throw me, throw at me, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it well, do it the best I can. I'm going to ask questions. And I brought in a notebook with me. I was writing down stuff. You know, I drew sketches of the kitchen at lunch. I just did everything to immerse myself. And this was like the next big push for me to see what the next level of professional chef was, because this was like the most clean, organized and cohesive kitchen I have ever seen till this day in my life. There wasn't a lot of like talking. Um, the communication was very minimal and just crazy amounts. It's like everybody knew exactly what their job was, including porters, the servers, the captains. And there was so much mutual respect and team effort that I have modeled my entire kitchens after this place, having worked for it down to how I order food, how I create dishes, how I train staff. It, you know, I was only supposed to work there a couple hours a day. I would just roll up like right when the kitchen worked and I wanted to leave with the pastry chef and like, I would like help them clean and scrub. And, you know, most stages you, you don't stay that long. If I could have been in there 24 hours a day, I absolutely would. And it was in December during, you know, holiday season. So it was really busy. So they threw a lot of projects at me and I got to learn a lot of really cool stuff. And, you know, it, that changed, that changed my perspective on the career 100%. And that was the big push I needed to, you know, I feel like there's not a lot of times in your life that you're inspired. That for me, I think is one of the inspiration points spent for me, where I just, my entire perspective changed on food and service and, and respect for people. So then after that, I mean, you were there for like the summer and then you go back to the, the mill house, right? You go back to where you were already kind of working. You're a sous chef there. So you're kind of managing other people in the kitchen. And then you then eventually you get promoted to executive chef. How did you find out about being promoted? So I had been working there and um, my work ethic can be pretty intense at times. I'm very hands on. I'm not the type of chef that like sits behind a desk or anything. I'm definitely like, I just love like being in the kitchen and prepping and working with my team and learning from my team and teaching my team and trading ideas and trying new dishes and improving things. And I'm all about the refinement. So I'm very hands-on. So, you know, I, I was there all the time. Our head chef at the time, you know, it, it was just too much for him and he ended up leaving. The next thing was, I didn't even think that they were going to offer me the executive chef job. And uh, I didn't, I didn't even necessarily want it either. I, I was perfectly happy with just running the kitchen and everything kitchen based. But I had worked so, so very hard and my team had worked so very hard to get it to the point where it was this. And when they offered it to me, I told them I'd think about it. And the one thing that was daunting to me was having another chef come in and completely gut the place and start over fresh. And, you know, we'd probably lose staff. We'd have higher turnover again. We have to start over. I had such an emotional attachment to, I finally got it to the way I wanted it to run and the food costing and the inventory and the onboarding and everything just the way I want it. Like uniforms, like when I rolled up, when I came back to the mill house, like uniforms were terrible. I finally got people dressing professional, you know, and communicating professionally and showing up on time and great scheduling and things like that. And I was like, man, I don't want to go through this again. You know, it was, again, it was a risk and not being afraid of taking risks. I just said, I believe in myself. My girlfriend supported me and she, you know, she told me you're never going to be ready for a new experience. You just got to dive in and learn, pick it up as you go. And so I did it. And, you know, they, they told me, you know, um, you know, how would you like to take, run the kitchen as executive chef, run the property? And, you know, we had a coffee roasting room. We had the chef's table. We had the restaurant. We had catering. It, you know, it was a lot, a lot of work. And 
I just focused on who I had with me, elevated the people and gave them job opportunity that were doing really, really well. And I eventually built a network of people to help support my vision of food and supporting the farmers and supporting mutual respect and pushing pushing the boundaries and working towards refinement. And it, it just worked out that way. Did you enjoy the interactive part of the chef's table? Because that part was pretty unique where it was like you were encouraged to like get up, move around like the restaurant and everything, go see what the kitchen's doing, like that, that big long counter and everything. Since, But that's like not a traditional part of like a chef's tasting or a chef's table or anything like that. Was that a part that took a little bit to like get used to? I, you know, um, when we first opened it um, in Haiku, it was tough for me because I was so focused on the food. Once I was like, a sous chef for a while and I got the confidence and, you know, I, we started because at the time, like it was a different person working chef's table every time. So you really had to watch that person and make sure that the person helping you was on it. But that was one of the first things I changed was I was like, I want the same people working chef's table so that they know what they're doing. And I can trust that I can turn my back to some scallops and they're going to look at it and know when it's ready, you know, or something, or someone wants to take a photo and it's like, okay, have the bread in the oven, watch the bread. And I know they're not going to be like, Oh man, I, went on my Instagram for five minutes and the bread burned or, you know, so it was the trust thing, but I absolutely love interacting with people while I'm cooking. And I, you know, I'm all about focus and putting it on the plate and getting the food out. But I really do enjoy interacting with people. And especially for something like that, you know, people are coming out to engage with the chefs and they have all the questions and they're interesting. And, you know, majority of the time, they're very, very respectful and interested in what you're doing. And it's nice to have people supporting your business and what you're doing. And I just really, really like love that about my customers. And it was just fun for me to do it. It's tough at time, you know, like sometimes you're just really stressed out. It's a new dish you've never tried. But uh, I think that added to the drama and the theater of what Chef's Table was. And people could see you, you know, you'd be mid-conversation, you'd be like, hold on, I got to plate this for this food scene at cold. And they could see you and they, you know, they thought it was fun. And, you know, it was like a video game for you too. <laughs> running that entire, all those different properties for a couple of years, then coronavirus happens, everything shuts down across the state, not just there. But then two months later, like two months into the shutdown, you're named chef of the year by Maui magazine. You don't really have like a restaurant to call home. Was that kind of weird? Like, what was that like? You get this kind of prestigious award and it's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm like out of work. <laughs> it's kind of weird, right? It sucked. Um, I love that, you know, I got recognized for it by my peers and being the youngest chef to ever win it. And I have such a great place for the magazine in my heart. I grew up reading it, you know, but it really did. So, you know, we got best farm to table that year. We got best private dining experience at the chef's table. You know, we got just like a long list of these things. And, you know, at the time, like we were doing like a lot of shows are coming in and filming bits for travelers bureaus. And, you know, there's a lot of like things like we were just on such a high, like things were going so good. You know, when it hit, it was just kind of like the icing on the cake where I, you know, I, I did kind of feel a little depressed at that point where it was unsure if I was going to have a job because I was still currently working at the mill house. I was doing like produce boxes and breaking down whole hogs and making butcher's boxes and selling them to the community because the, um, you know, we had allotted for X amount of pigs for the year and you can't just tell the pig farmer to go get bent. You know, I wanted to make sure he made money on those that we allotted and it was a handshake deal. So I could have backed out, but it's a small world or a small island. And, you know, I, I had, I do what I do because I have great relationships with our farmers and I, I don't want to ever do that. And so we we're doing that. And it was really depressing because that would have been a moment that I got to share with my team and be like, I got chef of the year, but I wouldn't have gotten it without the support and the hard work of all of you guys. And 
And uh, that hurt really bad that I didn't get to share the moment with my team. And we were unsure at the time, you know, we were flattening the curve and we didn't know we were going to come back. And it sucked because it would have been nice to just reel in that trophy with the team and just pop champagne. And, you know, it was really cool, very honored and humbled to get it. But it, it was a point in my life where that was kind of like a wake up call. Like if I get laid off, I cannot stop. I have to keep going. Like the only thing that's kept me going this entire time through the virus is that I've gone too far to stop. You know, I'm, I got to keep going. If I objects in motion, stay in motion. If I stop, I'm just going to lose it. I got to keep going. I got to keep training. I keep working. I got to keep reading books, making new dishes, pushing hard, you know, and it sucked, but it was also very motivating and it just ignited my drive again. I got that second wind. I was pretty burnt out from shutting the restaurant down and laying off over 200 people and you know, clearing out and entertaining, changing the restaurant's concept because of COVID. And we, you know, we went through, we did a food truck for a minute and all this crazy stuff. And when I got that, it just restarted my faith in the industry and, and uh, it motivated me to do more again. Did the idea for Kamado come out of kind of that where it was doing all the layoffs and stuff like that and watching it kind of all slowly close and, and that kind of started spinning your wheel? Or did you already have that idea already in kind of the back of your mind as something that you were going to explore anyways and just coronavirus kind of accelerated it? One of the P&Ls, you know, I had done a bunch of different profit and loss programs. You know, if we open the restaurant, we do this, cons, we do that, like this would be good. And one of the things that I thought would be good would be private chef work because you don't need a lot of employees to do it. All the restaurants are closed on the island. The COVID laws on Maui at the time were like, wear a mask, sanitize. Like the health department didn't really have anything. So they weren't, they were shutting down restaurants based off of population, but you could do small groups. And my girlfriend and I, you know, I found out that I was going to get laid off and it was pretty hard. It was tough with everything, you know, and at that time I was just really burnt out and emotional. And, you know, I, I had employees that I had brought back to help me do the food truck. I came home and I got laid off July 11th. I was kind of just at home, not knowing what I'm going to do. And my girlfriend was like, you got to do something. You know, you just won chef of the year. We got to do something. Um, we got to keep the momentum going. And it had kind of sucked. You know, I love our owner to death. I mean, he's such a great guy. I mean, to be laid off by anyone, you know, it sucks. But he's just so classy in the way he did it. And you felt the compassion in his heart. You know, he's just such a great guy. And But it also sucked to have a feeling of like, you still have, you can still keep going in your heart. You're like, we can get through this, but someone else pull the plug. But I respected that. You know, when you own a business, it's not up to what the people who work for you decide. It's what you decide because you are taking the financial risk. So I respect that. So I told my girlfriend, or, or you know, we told each other, it'd be nice to just put in hard work. And when we want to quit, we can quit. But no one else can tell us when we can quit. We started a pop up dinner, and uh, we did a couple of them. And my brother, um, he's an amazing marketer. He did our website and one of my best friends, you know, he's a graphic designer. He did our logo and uh, we got some plateware from a bunch of our friends and family. And we just started doing, them. you know, I, of course, as a chef, I bring home stuff I buy from closing restaurants. I have like meat grinders and, you know, Vitamixes and things. And um, I knew I could do it after doing the chef's table. I knew I could do it after doing catering. I knew I could do it. And um, it made sense because we didn't have a lot of people. We only needed two people to do it. You know, if we had a couple people who were interested in the multi-course tasting menu or a brunch or something, we could do it. We didn't think that it was going to be something that was going to keep us afloat, but all of a sudden it just popped up and Maui No Koi Magazine did a, a release for us for the February issue on our new business. And it, it just, you know, people, it just poured in and 
you know, we did a Washington Post article a couple of weeks ago, and it's just people are generally interested in what we're doing with many restaurants shut down and everyone loved the chef's table and coming and doing the food that we were making. We still get DMs of, we ate at your chef's table three years ago. We love talking to you. We want to eat your food again. We're coming to Maui. Can you do it for us? And, uh, you know, with following the COVID, our COVID precautions and, and working towards it, we just, at the end of the day, we want to make good food, make people happy and make experiences and, and give them a good time and a I, what we feel is a true experience to what my cuisine is. And it's worked out a lot. What's been the biggest challenge of running a private in-home dining experience for people compared to what you were doing before actually, you know, working in a physical restaurant? Getting the commercial kitchen up and running, we rent one down. That was pretty tough because we don't have a lot of health inspectors in Hawaii and they're just, those guys are just working so hard and they're so overworked. And you know what a lot of people don't realize is that the health department doesn't just do restaurants. They do parks and schools and hospitals and they are very, 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 very busy. And I have so much respect and admiration for what they do. And they, they work extremely hard. And, um, you know, the, the state building was shut down. So getting all the paperwork for that was really, really tough. Um, other than that, you know, the most difficult thing was kind of like what I was talking to you about really before we started the show was you get on the highway and um, you get stuck in traffic because there's just a fire on the poly and you have ice cream in your cooler. You know, you got to design dishes that are taste great, are safe for travel, going to be memorable. And, you know, designing a menu when you have a restaurant, you know, is, is so much better because you have the freezers, you're operating on the same equipment all the time. You know that this one burner is really good and this one's not very good. But when you go into someone's rental, their home, their turnkey house, and you've never cooked in it before, you don't know where the hot spots are in the oven. You don't know if the dishwasher works. You don't know how well the range works. Some people don't even have a range. Some people have a flat top or a griddle. So you have to do your research and figure out what they have to cook and then create a menu off of that. And so designing menus specifically catered to travel, execution, memorable moments on a different scale from having a home base that you cook for all the time has been difficult, but also fun because you challenge yourself and try new things and you take risks. And that's what I'm all about. What's the story behind the name? Basically, you know, my, my heritage is I'm, you know, I'm half Portuguese and uh, Okinawan. Definitely my life has been inspired largely by Asian culture in Hawaii, the the way that, you know, Asian Americans, Asians cater to food and handle things with respect and not to say other cultures don't, but that has been a huge part of my culture is the Japanese culture. And especially in Hawaii, you know, like martial arts are really big here. So when Natasha was designing the name, she wanted to do something that had a little bit of an emotional attachment to me and something that meant something to me. And we, you know, we had played with a bunch of different names and, um, you know, she was like, what about what about Kamado? And I was like, what does that mean? That's like a green egg. And she was like, no, if you look up the definition, it's actually a ceramic hearth where the food would be prepared and served in a Japanese home. So I said, that's kind of like chef's table. We're like cooking the food and serving in this area. And she's like, yeah, exactly. So it kind of makes sense what we're doing. We're going to someone's home, the area they're cooking in, and we're creating food in this area of the home. And I said, I think that is the perfect name for what we're doing. Completely describes what kind of experience we're doing. And, you know, it has a special place in my heart because of the, uh, the heritage tied to it. And, you know, how many people have, have these areas they cook in. But to us, every time we go somewhere, we have the Kamado because we bring the food and we bring the experience and we light up that hearth with our, with our passion and our desire and our drive. That's what makes the fire hot. And we are the oven is what I like to think. 
We do another podcast where we're rewatching Anthony Bourdain's episodes, and we recently did the Hawaii one. As you just mentioned, Okinawan, Portuguese. You were born, raised, and have never really lived outside of Maui, or at least Hawaii. I mean, you lived on Honolulu for a little bit. Are you Hawaiian, or I think you're Hawaiian? You grew up there. That's home for you. You might never leave. But to others, I think on the island, by definition, you know, you're not of, you know, Hawaiian descent. So maybe you're not. How do you see it? Here's the thing. Similar to Native Americans is the same thing as Native Hawaiian. So they are the people of this area. This is their land, their culture. I consider myself to be a local. I'm what you call um, Hapahaui, which means you're half-half so that you're you're part white, you know, is basically what it essentially means. Um, growing up in Hawaii, you know, there's a lot of different uh, cultures out here. The plantation era, um, you know, World War One, and what brought so many cultures here, you know, we have a huge Filipino community, Spanish, Puerto Rican, Chinese, Japanese, I think, and of course, Hawaiian, you know, a lot of them moved here to work the fields in the plantation era. That's why they're you know, the plantation is such a huge um, theme here in Hawaii because it's actually part of our heritage. And so it's a large mixing pot of many cultures. So we have the native Hawaiian culture. Um, a lot of native Hawaiians and have become professors and, you know, have written the language down and restored a lot of things and researched a lot of the um, theology and gods and religion. And really, really, it's a beautiful language. They're beautiful people. You know, I, I love everything. I'm so proud to be from Hawaii. But to be a local in Hawaii means to me that you have the respect for the land, you have the respect for the sea, you have the respect for being the animals and the culture. And, you know, that's a big thing we're facing right now with, with over-tourism that a lot of uh, locals are upset with is just people don't understand the culture. The Hawaiian culture is, there's so many things that a lot of people just don't know about it. You know, we learn about it when we're, we're in school here. We don't do so much as Native American things. We have Hawaiian studies and Hawaiiana, and we have a kumu, which is a Hawaiian teacher come in and teach us songs and the colors. And, you know, um, we learn chants and we make certain, you know, we, we make certain um, things that they would make. And we learn about fish farming and ahupua'as and the lifestyle. And so it's different, you know. Um, I wish there was a program that could cue people up and there'd be more education. And I think we're getting close. But I personally identify as a local I'm someone who's from Hawaii, who grew up here, who respects the culture. I coexist with a lot of the Native Hawaiians here and respectfully try to affect the community in the best way I can through my craft. Have you gone to any other island so far to, to cook, to bring Kamado? Have you had people request, hey, I'm over in Hilo, will you guys come over? Yeah, we have done a lot of inner island. It was difficult for a while because it, you know, it was really expensive. So in Hawaii, we had to do a... Um, COVID tests prior to traveling 72 hours to fly over and then to come back, you have to do one. And uh, that was pretty difficult because, you know, at the time everyone's getting COVID tested, these places are just overwhelmed. And it was about 170 to 200 bucks every time you do it. And so you'd have to load that into the, you know, the client has to pay for that. Like I'm not paying out of pocket for that. So it didn't sell as well, but for a lot of higher end clients, we, you know, we got a couple through COVID. We had Big Island and Kauai and Oahu, and then now it's gone. So we're getting more requests for it, but we make so much more profit locally and we're, but we're open to doing other islands and it's just, you know, it's a different price point because we have to travel, but you know, people respond to it very, very well. And especially with, you know, the scares of things up and coming and, you know, I'd rather just, you know, in Hawaii, you can't have more than six people. And we just moved from the, 
50% of people eating in a restaurant, an outdoor thing. So getting into a restaurant is really, really difficult. And I think that's the harder thing for the tourists too, is a lot of people are coming here thinking that we're as open as other places, but we really aren't. I mean, Maui specifically and Hawaii in general has been very shut down with COVID and very, very cautious. And, um, you know, because we're an island, it's, it's scary for us. And, um, you know, a lot of people haven't been working and people are having a very hard time hiring, just like anywhere else in the world, but specifically Maui, I think, is having a very hard time bringing people on. I mean, I get texts every day looking for cooks, recommendations on people. It, it, it's a tough market right now to get employees. Yeah, we were there. Uh, we went to Honolulu in May. You know, some of the Uber drivers and stuff that we talked to, they're like, all these like Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, they're not open because they just they can't find the people, you know? Guys are struggling too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would make sense that Maui would have less population, so less available people to work and, and all that stuff too. Yeah, people are still scared to go out to you. Locals aren't. Is there only one hospital on Maui? Uh, we have a Kaiser and an HMSA at the Maui Memorial or medical. Um, but we have like medic, you know, uh, minute medical and things like that, the emergency ones. But most of the time they just take you straight to the hospital once they go in there. But it's scary. It's scary too. You know, like, uh, if you get stuck in Lahaina and you know, they, they got a helicopter you out, it can be terrifying for a lot of people, but, um, it's spooky. I mean, I, my heart goes out to all the nurses. My, my sister-in-law is a nurse and she worked in the COVID unit. And I mean, you know, we would FaceTime her because she wanted to be safe and make sure that she wasn't spreading it. And so we did a lot of a Zoom happy hours and, you know, talk stories and whatnot. And it was scary for them because they were just overwhelmed. You know, they're the nurses and the doctors and the EMTs. They were all just just so overwhelmed. Is the format, the in-home kind of private catering, private dining experience, is that something that you think you're going to stick with? Or once kind of everything bounces back from coronavirus and all that stuff, would you explore opening an actual physical restaurant location too? Or The start, I don't like to say end goal because there's never an end when you're, you're building something. But the start goal would be to have our own restaurant. We want a brick and mortar restaurant. You know, we, we right now we're just stacking cash. You know, we've talking to, you know, with some investors, people who want to invest, you know, we're, we want somewhere that's good to eat and casual, but fun, you know, and you can dress up if you want, or you can roll in with slippers and, and eat there. You know, we want it to be good food, great cocktails, great music, and, you know, just a fun dining experience. But, you know, right now with, you know, restaurants have such a small margin to profit on. And when someone's telling you that you can't operate at a hundred percent, not that I don't understand why they're doing that. I completely understand that and respect it. But, you know, I'd rather open a restaurant and them say, yeah, you can open up 100% and someone say, you know, tomorrow we got to cut it in half and then struggle and then have to lay people off. You know, I've already done that shit. and I'd like to not have to do that again. So right now with two employees and just, you know, I know I'm not going to call out sick from work unless I'm actually sick. You know, with COVID, you got to be smart. But I know that being tired or something isn't going to be something that's going to keep me from doing my work. I'm going to push through and I'm going to make sure that building our dreams is going to work, you know, our goals, you know, I don't have dreams, I have goals. How much prep work are you able to do? Or is it like a case by case basis? Are you able to do some kind of prep work at that central kitchen that you mentioned earlier and then kind of transport it all? Or if you have to go to like a different island, is it like, well, we just kind of have to set up in that space and figure it out from there? Sometimes if we do inner island, we usually prep in the commercial kitchen, load a cooler and transport it. And then um, we go for it because it's inner island. It really, the food stays very, very cold. It's like a 30 minute flight. So it's, it's not an issue as far as safe, food safety, um, you know, but the great thing about private chef is you're majority prepping everything there. 
and you just got to be good at what you do and get it done and get it right on time. Since you've been in kind of working in restaurants and everything like that, how has kind of the food scene, not just in Maui, but in Hawaii as a whole, like changed since you've been in it? More places have opened. I mean, I think just between, you know, the last two times that we've been to the islands, I mean, there's restaurants in Honolulu that didn't exist prior to like 2017. So it kind of has that almost in a way that kind of Vegas type feel where Vegas has a lot of kind of turnover, I feel like with restaurants, just because it's like, oh, it's been here, you know, four or five years, like we got to put in a new concept because otherwise, you know, people come back every year and yada, yada, yada. So how has it changed since, since you've been involved with the food scene there? definitely Oahu for sure. You know, it's, it's got so much more foot traffic. It's so much more city based. Like, uh, you know, Kauai is very slow or slower than Honolulu a lot. And, and Maui is kind of that nice in between where it's still country and it's got a little bit of city, but just enough to where you don't get burnt out on being in a concrete jungle, you know? I've seen it change a lot. And one thing that I really, really like, you know, to reference what we were talking about earlier is me like Alan Wong, you know, um, a lot of people have grown towards supporting local and the, the chef scene on Maui specifically, like we're all friends. We all work together. We love seeing each other and we, we go to each other's restaurants to support each other, not just to go see what everyone else is doing. Like we're going there to like, you know, we're showing you some aloha this weekend. Like, you know, we're going to take our staff out and eat here and they, you know, they treat us and they do really, really nice stuff, take care of us. And they come to your restaurant and they do it. Um, so the, the, the kitchen culture out here is very, very, you know, just healthy. And, you know, we have very healthy rivalry and whatnot. And we all talk and, you know, oh, did you hear about this guy? He's growing watercress and kula. You should, you should order for him. He's got a lot and he's trying to get rid of it. And, you know, so we all support each other supporting the farmers. It's not just like, I'm going to give you money and you only farm for me from now on. It's very less mafia, you know, like you're my farmer. You don't sell to anyone. It's not like that at all. Um, it's very much supporting. And I've really loved to see how many restaurants are supporting that straying away from ordering ready-made products from the mainland. You know, a lot of food is being made again. People are interested in making their breads and training their staff to cook and working with products and education on the products and different products. They're not just ordering the same safe things. You're starting to see more people rotate their menu through seasonality and, you know, to avoid convenience. You know, we just have so many great chefs on Maui right now. You know, that we stand on the shoulders of chefs that have come before us. And, you know, I think that they really pushed for us to have this beautiful bounty of, of produce readily available and proteins. And the food has gotten far less rich and far lighter. And I think that the demographic really responds well to the, you know, you're, you're working out all summer to have that beach bod. And then you come here and you're eating really, really rich food. And then you, you just don't feel as good. And you see a lot of lighter and more acid forward dishes, which, you know, is kind of my wheelhouse. And I really enjoy that and much more balanced and um, much more vegetable based for sure. Yeah, you mentioned you like to really cook with vegetables. You know, I think going back all the way to Alan Wong's, when you're crafting like a menu, I mean, do some consulting with the person who's like, you know, and if they're looking specifically for like, yeah, we want like four seafood dishes or is to a lot of people are kind of like, whatever you think's best, like you're the chef, we give it to you and we have no allergy, you know, restrictions or anything. So have at it. I usually start with, you know, what are your allergies? What, what foods don't you like? Because, you know, that's the thing. Cause like, you know, I, I did a couple dinners and people were like, oh man, I don't, I do not like shrimp. And I'm like, well, these are prawns from Kauai. And they're like, mm, yeah, I don't like shrimp. So we changed that, you know, we're just about approaching a year and doing Kamado this September 
or coming up end of September, I believe, was when we started conceptualizing it officially, like with a business LLC and stuff like that. I like to create dishes and a formula. Like I start with a one bite and packed with as much flavor as I can stuff in there, usually with vegetables. And then the second dish is like a salad. And then I'll go into a seafood dish or raw dish. And then I'll go into bread with some kind of flavored fat, be it honey, beef fat, olive oil, you know, and that will rotate. And then I'll go into a pasta course and then a land animal entree and then a seasonal dessert, which dessert, I either say it's fruit forward, it's chocolate forward, or um, something that combines all of them that's, you know, a little bit easier. And so when I ask the questions, I ask, do you want a fried first course? You know, how do you like to eat your seafood? Are you okay with raw? And then I kind of list off, you know, what kind of breads do you like? These are the breads that I make. These are the type of butters and things that I make. These are the herbs that I would use in it. And then I ask them what their favorite proteins are and I show them what I have available. And then I ask them if they like chocolate fruit or a combination or something completely whimsical. And uh, we create dishes from that, but we have sample menus that we send them to. And we say, these are some of the dishes. And sometimes people are like, wow, that sounds really, really great. And I say, okay, just so you know, Cherry tomatoes aren't in season right now. So we're going to go for these romas from Kumu Farms. Or we, We're very blessed here in Hawaii to have environment that we can grow strawberries year-round and bananas. And we have a really, really quick turnaround with all the microclimates. So for the most part, it's fairly easy. You know, um, you just got to get to the farmer's market early because all the chefs now know which farmers have all the good stuff. What's next for you professionally as a chef? Is it just working towards eventually opening a restaurant? Is that kind of the next thing or is there anything in between? Yeah, you know, definitely opening a restaurant is there. Building a staff, building a platform for young cooks to work and work with products, work with things from here and create my own restaurant um, concept based around that where people can come and say, this is um, a regional Hawaiian local food area to eat that is refined and upscale. This is an area where if I eat here, I'm supporting these people. If I eat here, I trust the fact that, you know, it's people who live here are being employed. Um, we're supporting a place with self-growth and education and supporting Maui culinary program as well as the other islands. Uh, you know, that, that means a lot to me. I didn't have, you know, like I said, leaving high school, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to be educated. You know, I was a skateboarder. I got into a lot of trouble as a miscreant. And uh, I really want to make an area safe for people to work and, and learn a craft and learn a trade. And if they go on to become great chefs or great managers, that'd be great. And if that's just something that gets them to the next step of their life, but they had a safe experience. And, you know, I, I want to create a place where people can truly come in and feel like, I can work here, I'm supporting good things and I'm gonna grow. You know, I think a lot of the things that creates turnover is, you know, people don't have career opportunities, people are treated poorly, people are underpaid and uh, people don't take pride in their job. You know, sometimes you take pride in your job but you don't get any money, you know, i.e. artists. Um, sometimes you work for a company that you don't like at all, you don't even wanna tell people you work for them and then you make great money, you know, you just, you're selling your soul and you have to do something that is best for you and your family. And I kind of want to create an even playing ground for people to do that. You know, I'd like to continue in giving back to the community with a lot of the younger kids in schools like that and working towards showing people to come from low income housing that, you know, you can do it. You can create your own business. You can educate yourself. Um, even after graduating high school, which however I graduated, I don't know what miracle that was. I didn't really go to school very much, you know, just because 
at the time you're not doing well, doesn't mean that later on you can't do well. And you can always start. You can be 50 years old and start your life over and, and be happy. You know, you can quit and start and quit and start. The path to success is littered with failure and failing isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a growing pain. So we got a handful of more questions for you. I uh, ask these to everybody who comes on. So everybody, it's kind of like a compare and contrast. Who is the biggest influence, would you say, on your cooking career thus far? Personally, um, working with, I'd say, is Jonathan Mizukami. Um, on a non-personal level, for chefs that I really, really admire, I'd definitely say David Kinch, Thomas Keller, Pierre Kaufman. Those have been people that have really, really inspired my career. Those those people, you know, um, till this day, Jonathan Mizukami and I were... were close friends. I still call him chef because he's just someone I respect so much. And, you know, he's someone who, who I, I say like me, but me like him is probably what I should say, believes in local culture and the cuisine and what Hawaii cuisine actually is. And he, he's working to push the boundaries so that people are educated on products that grow well here. And, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of the things that I do now come from working with him and truly one of the few times I was inspired because I don't use that word lightly. What's the one item, one kitchen item that uh, isn't a knife that you can't live without? Kitchen scale. Either a kitchen scale, a good set of spoons. One thing when you were working in a physical restaurant, and maybe this still applies to your setup now, but what's the one thing that if it broke, you wouldn't try and fix it yourself? You're calling somebody to come fix it. Anything electrical. Um, I'm someone who's been shocked a lot. Um, anything electrical, especially refrigeration, probably refrigeration, because, you know, you're sitting on that an army matches on its stomach and my army needs food to cook. So I, I don't mess with that. <laughs> What's uh, one restaurant in Maui that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Man, there's, you know, I always say to people, if you're getting to go food, go to Tin Roof, Sheldon Simeon's restaurant or Tight Tacos. It's Reg- my friend Reggie's restaurant. Kaana Kitchen, Lineage is great. Salt Pepe if you're in Lahaina. Those are all family-run restaurants that love their stuff. And, uh, you know, they support local farmers and they're amazing. Fond in Lahaina is also a great eatery. Food trucks, My Fresh Treatery is great. Many places that have made it through the pandemic who you talk to a chef, they're going to give you those same places. Just great people. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Haven't been to, but that's where you desperately want to go. Besides the fact of being a nerd and wanting to see Hobbiton, New Zealand, I, you know, I would really, really love to experience, um, South America. Never been to South America. I've been to Europe a lot. Um, I was planning to go to Europe again before the pandemic, but I'm definitely going to be going in. But Latin America is something, you know, I love the music. I love the food. I love the culture. Um, I'd love to do that some more. Destination restaurant. Yeah, that's a tough one. There's so many, you know, I've eaten a lot of really, really good restaurants over the years. Trying to think of like the chefs, you know, that like I've been watching lately that I've just been jonesing after. You know, I've never been in one of Daniel Belude's restaurants. I'd love to do either that or um, either Daniel Belude's or I'd love to try um, Gregory from Top Chef's restaurants. Um, I know he's got a new Haitian uh, food that he's been doing and he was at the departure for a while. I'd love to try his food, I but I feel like they're flavors that I really, really enjoy. I'd love to try one of his restaurants someday. Yeah, he's up in Portland. I think uh, it just came out. I saw something, I think, today that uh, Daniel Balud's opening up a restaurant in L.A. I don't. I mean, I don't know how much he's going to be in the kitchen, you know, after it first opens. I'm sure he'll have another executive chef there because he just opened a new one in New York. But, yeah, he's supposed to open one in L.A. at some point. So, Book over here now. I, you know, I love his food. I love his concepts. But um, the thing that really, really attracts me to his his style is – the way that people respond to working with him. Like you just know that when people are happy working for someone, the food's going to be really good. 
Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? As far as like injury or just whatever, just something that stands out that you're, that when you saw it happen, you were just like, wow, <laughs> like that's wild. That's crazy that that just happened. Um, I saw a server try to clock in once in a bikini. That was crazy. Not because I was attracted to her or anything, but because I thought it was the most unprofessional thing I've ever seen. Like to me, that's worse than showing up drunk. I, I, it was, what are you thinking right now? Like the, cause our clock in area it was in front of the customers. So you go to the bar and clock in and I'm very, uh, I'm a very hands-on manager. I'm very vocal. I literally couldn't even make words. The, the front of the house manager, I just pointed, I was like, why? <laughs> that was probably one of the craziest things that I thought I'd never seen a restaurant, even in Hawaii or close to the beach. Food or drink, guilty pleasure. Is there anything that like you try and stay away from, whether it's you know going down the grocery store aisles or some sort of snack food or anything like that? Oh, man. So to, to be clear, I love food. I love refined food. That it does has no, no meaning that I am approved at all food. I eat junk food just like everyone else. And all the chefs that lie and say they don't, I cannot pass up American cheese. Even if it's eating it out of the plastic, I love American cheese. It's just something that I ate a lot in my childhood. Even like, especially QP mayo, you know, there's something. My, I definitely have a weak spot for a good beer. I try to not drink a lot of beer, but uh, I, you know, I tell myself once a week I drink a beer, but it's tough. Is there a go-to like local brewery or anything? Maui Brewing Company. Did you go to Maui Brewing Company around here? I know I've had their beer before. I'm not sure if we actually went there or not. They're in a lot of stores in the mainland now. Uh, Garrett is just awesome. That's, you know, they got killer beers, like amazing options. They're doing spirits spirits now. They hopped into, you know, uh, for whatever reason, the the world went, you know, we had like a funny like roller coaster, you know, people were drinking Four Locos and Tilts and, and vodka used from the gas station. And then everyone started drinking seltzers. You know, it's like low calories and low sugar because everyone's into keto. And so, you know, Truly and White Claw and all this kind of, you know, Garrett and his team have made their own seltzer that starts with cane sugar with minimal sugar. And it is like something that doesn't blow you. And it's very light and it's great to drink on the beach. And uh, if you haven't tried those, they're, they're really good. And his spirits are pretty damn good too. You know, we have Kohala Brewery and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Waikiki Brewery and Honolulu Brewery. But for me being a Maui boy, I got to support, support my boy. And, uh, you know, I love his beer a lot. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career thus far that you can kind of point to and say that's the moment that it all kind of came together, that you knew that you could do this professionally. My aunt, we say aunt because in Hawaii we have, you know, like a, we call it Hanai. That's your your second family. You know, they took me in when I was a ruffian. And uh, like I said, you know, I got all my food traditions and experiences from them. You know, her cooking is just so simple and great. And, you know, one of my favorite dishes that she makes is this Italian roast. You know, one of the first nights that I came there, I was starving tall. You know, I was a tiny kid at the time. And, and uh, you know, it was hot and it was nurturing and filling and she had been braising it for hours. And, you know, that was like something that I ate. And every time I smell it, it, it brings me to the point of, you know, to that point in my life where I just never been so thankful to have someone cook me a home cooked meal. I haven't had a lot of those experiences. I would say where I look up as a child and I'm seeing pasta flour falling from a table and my grandma's rolling it. But if I had one emotional connection to a specific dish being made, it was that night. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you are, is there a favorite kind of moment 
episode scene that stands out to you or if you weren't is there anybody who when you were kind of coming up that you kind of gravitated towards from a culinary kind of television or travel perspective whether it was emerald who i mean you got to meet emerald but anybody you know who's on tv whether it's guy fieri or bobby flay or anybody like that I, you know, I love, I love Anthony Bourdain a lot, but I didn't watch him a lot because we didn't have a TV at the time when I was a kid, but someone that I did watch because we had three channels was Julia Child a lot and Jack Pepin, Jack Pepin. And man, I, I would love to meet that guy and just pour him a glass of wine and hang out with him for hours and just listen to stories. I mean, he, I used to watch his videos. I still, to this day, like omelets, that guy can debone a chicken faster than Flash Gordon can make it to the end of the scene, you know, like that guy to me is just, he's an artist, what he does with his hands and watching his cooking shows just with the ease and finesse that he does things. And you can tell that he's just worked hundreds of hours to perfect those things is someone who I still, to this day, just love watching cook. Even in the black and whites, I, I, you know, I have his first cookbook and letters to a young chef and all that stuff. He, you know, he's the perfect gentleman chef and someone that inspired me that cooking is a, in fact a craft and as a craftsperson, you need to work at it every day to become good at it. Where can people find you? Plug everything, uh, social media, website, all that stuff. Our website is CommodoMaui.com. You can find us on there and you'll there's pictures and you can email us. Also, CommodoMaui on Instagram, one word. If you look me up, Taylor Ponte, you'll find me on Google. Uh, you'll find our website. My Instagram is just Taylor, my first name, underscore Ponte, my last name, P-O-N-T-E. And, uh, you know, we, we actually answer our DMs and and whatnot. Um, so you're not going to get to some thing where it's someone else running our accounts. We actually run our accounts and we respond to you. And you know, it's real because we respond after a couple of days of you sending it because there's so many constantly coming in, but you know, it happens. And you know, uh, a lot of the time you, you DM a chef and ask them what knife and you never get a response. You just get a scene and, and close. But if you DM me, I will assuredly answer you and, and guide you. I'm all about sharing recipes and information and how I did things. And, you know, I want the world to be a better place and people to spend more time eating food. And I'm not the best, but I'm always looking to learn. And I like communicating with people in the community as much as I do cooking. And if somebody was like vacationing to, you know, Maui or one of the other islands and they wanted to reach out to you guys to set something up, how much lead time should they give themselves? Should it be reach out like a couple months before they're going to land there or, or what's kind of that average time that's the sweet spot? The more time you give us, the better. You know, we've got a small weddings book and things like that, you know. But the more time, a couple weeks, I'd say at least three weeks minimum. But the more time you give us, the more we can lock you in and set you up. And that's usually the best. You want, especially if you want like one of those dining, or if you want drop off, which is a service we also do, then we can do that. But if you want like a multi-course dining experience, the best way to do it is to email us as soon as possible so that we can begin the coordinating and setting up your custom menu, what you want. Um, You know, we do a lot of anniversaries, recession celebrations. Um, you know, we've done a bunch of different Mother's Days and things like that. So depending on what you want, you know, if it's something you really, really want to specifically be special, um, I'd say give it a little more time because then we can coordinate local music, local dancing. You don't just get me, you'll get a little bit more for your, uh, for your time. And you guys do weddings too, right? I think you just mentioned that. Yeah, we do weddings. Right now, we're only doing small weddings that are, you know, with our local laws and that our governor is saying that we can do in Maui County. So we're respecting that. Please don't call us and ask us to do illegal weddings because I will not do it. I definitely go by the book. I don't break none of those rules. I used to be a bad boy. I am not anymore. I won't break those rules, Uh, especially during a pandemic. It's just my personal belief. I don't want to do anything that will reflect our business negatively. And, you know, I want to support working towards a better 
eventually us all dining out. So we won't do those illegal weddings, but if you want to do a small wedding, you know, contact us, we'll make it work for you. It's turned out really, really great. And we've had a lot of happy clientele. We just did a wedding two weeks ago and it was amazing. Well, look, I appreciate you, even with the time difference and everything, appreciate you coming on, taking some time out of one of your off days or at least an off morning for you. You know, we had a great experience. Looking forward to whenever we get back over to the islands. I, I think it'll probably be a routine thing for us every couple of years or whatever, but maybe next time you'll have an actual physical restaurant. But if not, we will be in touch and, and having you set something up for us because everything we had was delicious uh, when we had that experience, like you said. So with, you know, people reaching out to you from three years ago and stuff like that. So, you know, looking forward to seeing kind of what's next for you guys and, and keep doing what you're doing. And that's why it gets to open back up and you guys get to do more stuff. So, but yeah, stay in touch, open invitation to, you know, anytime you want to come on a podcast and need to plug something or, you know, whatever, anybody who comes on the podcast, it's always an open invitation for them to come back. It doesn't always have to be an hour hour 15 minutes or, or whatever too as well so definitely want to support everybody who's you know supporting us so we always really appreciate everybody and and stay safe stay in touch and hopefully we'll be we dining with you soon yeah same thank you so much for having me and you know if you're ever in hawaii hit me up you know i'll cook for you because i like to cook for people just in general you don't gotta pay me so just <laughs> you let me know we'll do a little backyard barbecue and i'll I'll get you on the Calby rib game or whatever we're going to be doing that weekend, you know, and uh, thanks for having me. And it's been really, really cool hanging out with you. And I look forward to speaking with you and work with you in the future. And I love your podcast and your channel and you got some really good food reviews and great pictures. So I was really, really pumped for you today. Thank you. A big thanks again to Chef Ponty for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day off to come on. I know it's always hard with, you know, doing the event stuff and scheduling and rescheduling and you don't want to turn any job down. So it was definitely cool to finally be able to get a chance to sit down and, and talk and everything. Really cool interview. Hawaii is one of my favorite places to visit. You know, been there a handful of times. We'll continuously, you know, go back every, you know, three, five years or something like that. Definitely want to check out all the other islands too that we haven't been to and everything. But if you wind up headed to over to Hawaii, you know, and you're into food, make sure to hit him up, check them out, see if you get something set up. It'd be an awesome dinner. I had a great time, the time that I had his food and I definitely would hit him up, you know, whenever we get back over there to the Hawaiian islands, probably be a, a couple years, you know, unless somebody we know gets married or something over there or something like that. But you can follow him on Instagram at Taylor underscore Ponte, P-O-N-T-E, and also at Kamadu Maui. It's K-A-M-A-D-O-M-A-U-I, both on Instagram. So make sure to give them a follow and check them out. I think he was actually kind of visiting uh, D.C. and New York uh, about like last week or so. He's hitting up a different few different places in D.C. and they went to Per Se, him and his girlfriend, and I think his brother, maybe his brother's wife or brother-girlfriend. Over They went up to Per Se in New York and stuff like that too as well. So Thomas Keller is pretty influential in the early part of his career, like so many people. So make sure to check them out. Check us out too as well. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at SpoonMob1. If you go back into our Instagram feed, it'd be kind of mid to late May. There should be some pictures from the chef's table experience in Maui that I posted. So they stand out kind of against all the rest. Uh, there's like a windmill in there and everything too as well in the pond and everything. So you can kind of get a feel of what it used to look like and some of the courses that they were putting out, some of the dishes that they were putting out too as part of that experience. So check those out. Check out the website, boonmob.com, always putting up uh, different profiles, different food picks, stuff like that. Make sure to follow us or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. We're on a whole bunch of different platforms, all the major ones that you know, Apple, Spotify, 
Amazon Music, Google Podcasts are kind of the big ones, but also a bunch of the obscure kind of smaller platforms that people with mostly Android phones, you know, prefer to use. So your Spreaker, your Breaker, all that stuff, you know, Podbean, anything like that. So you can find us on all the platforms. Just search Spoon Mob. We're on there. You come across some, some platform that you don't find us for some reason. Shoot me a note. Let me know. Uh, I can either send in questions, comments, feedback through the website. There's a little portal there, kind of at the bottom contact page and you can submit anything. Or you can email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. Some people have chosen that route too as well. So it's always good to hear back from people and, and people that want to, you know, maybe set something up in the future and everything. So definitely keep that stuff coming. Make sure to, you know, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And and there'll be more Chef's interviews on the way, working on setting up some more stuff, have a few more still to release. Make sure to check out Parts Now Known, podcast series that me and my friend Ben do, that uh, we're re-watching the Parts Unknown Anthony Bourdain series. So we're kind of in the middle of season six right now. So about halfway point through the series. So there's a backlog of those episodes if you want to check those out too as well. Those are always a fun time. And there's some restaurant reviews that we've done in the past. Those are probably going to shift to a different platform that's currently being built. Uh, we got some ideas for stuff that we want to do with that. So more to come on that as uh, some details roll out. But uh, that sounds like a cool thing once it kind of all comes together. So hopefully this uh, kind of towards the fall, we'll have uh, maybe an announcement that we can put out there. But otherwise, appreciate everyone listening. Uh, continue to help spread the word. And, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.